0: This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.
1: In this episode, Jay and I take up the following stories. Apple announces a compliance website. Gary Kasson reports on the FCPA blog. What are some principles for victim remediation and ABC enforcement? Sam Hickey in the Global Anti-Corruption blog. Dave Leeford in Compliance Week says ESG is having a moment. What are some of the global trends on... FCPA enforcement, Stephanie Yankura and Ann Kim in CCI. An ex-SBM offshore executive is convicted in a UK Bribery Act case, Jonathan Armstrong in Cordery Compliance. What were some of the FCPA themes from 2020? Jonathan Marks takes a deep dive in board and fraud. What about board liability increases around compliance programs? Mike Volkoff explores in crime corruption and compliance global trends in corporate compliance in the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance. We take a look at some new podcasts, which premiered in March, and some great upcoming webinars and events. It's an episode I know you'll enjoy. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Everyone, and welcome to This Week in FCPA, episode 242 for the week ending, March 5, 2021, the lion or lamb edition. As March roars in as its traditional lion, we wonder if it will leave as the lamb, but in the interim, we're going to take a look at some of the week's top compliance and
0: ethics stories. Jay, what say you? Uh, I say it's better weather in Texas, so I'm glad you guys got a break this week, and I uh, Let's jump right in and hit the first of our stories.
1: First up, we have Apple with a big announcement about a a new compliance site. Harry Kasson talked about it. Uh, Matt Kelly talked about it. It's a pretty comprehensive site, Jay, and I would urge all of our listeners uh, and viewers to take a look at it uh, because it's got some some pretty cool stuff on there. And if you need any uh, forms, policies, benchmarking, it's certainly a, a great resource for you. Uh, it's interesting that this is uh, comes up after uh, the Chief Security Officer at Apple, former Chief Compliance Officer, was charged last fall with bribery and corruption domestically. It's an interesting case. Uh, but nevertheless, I think it's a great resource. Uh, anytime that you can have a, a large company which obviously has a global footprint, Uh, put out their thoughts on compliance and ethics. It's a great boon for the uh, greater compliance community. So I'm going to give Apple a big kudos for putting this out. And uh, I'm really not too concerned about what their motives were. I'm more concerned about moving the ball forward in anti-bribery, anti-corruption. So a big announcement from Apple
0: and uh, kudos as well. What's up next, Jay? Uh, Next up, we've got something from Sam Hickey writing in the Global Anti-Corruption blog. And he's going to talk about what are some principles for victim remediation and anti-bribery and corruption enforcement action. Uh, There's a broad consensus that foreign bribery harms the citizens and the governments of developing nations. But in most cases where an enforcement agency is, there is a supply side jurisdiction. That is the home jurisdiction of the companies that paid the bribes. They reach a settlement with the company accused of bribing foreign officials, But the settlement does not provide for any remedial payments to the government or the citizens of where the demand side, the country where the bribery took place. In a recent article, Sam proposed a framework that could achieve a more consistent outcome and could be used as a benchmark for developing best practices. In this post that we quote to in the show notes, he outlines factors that enforcement agencies should take into account. And I'm going to briefly share some of his thoughts with you. Before proceeding to the factors that enforcement agencies ought to consider, it's important to distinguish between two concepts of harm and two associated concepts of victimhood, distinctions which in turn suggest a crucial distinction between two different forms of remediation. First, we should distinguish between direct and indirect harm. Direct harm exists where the harm suffered by the victim is directly attributable to the misconduct of the perpetrator. The deferred prosecution agreement negotiated between the Serious Fraud Office and Standard Bank could prove an illustrative example of direct harm in the foreign bribery context. Standard Bank's subsidiary paid $6 million in bribes using funds that would have otherwise been paid to the Tanzanian government. This distinction between direct and indirect harm is useful in distinguishing different kinds of corruption victims. What he calls a first-order victim are those who have suffered direct harm and those who have suffered second-order. It makes sense you'd call them second-order victims. These distinctions, in turn, provide us with a vocabulary for describing two different categories of remediation, compensation versus reparations. Compensation seeks to make a first-order victim whole, to the greatest extent possible, by providing an amount of remediation equal to the direct harm suffered by the victim. The standard bank DPA noted above is an example of the co- compensation. Reparations, on the other hand, are intended to benefit second-order victims of corruptions and direct harms. For example, the SFO and the DOJ have included terms in DPAs and plea deals that requires defendant firms to provide funds earmarked for public infrastructure initiatives or charities in the countries where bribery took place. With this distinction in hand, we can next move on to consider the criterion that enforcement agencies ought to use. With regard to compensation, enforcement agencies should take the following factors into account. First, whether there's an identifiable viable first order victim. Second, the number to which the degree of loss to the victim is reasonably ascertainable. Third, whether there's a risk that paying compensation to the victim will lead to additional corruption. And finally, four, whether providing compensation would be impractical or unnecessary. Because different harm is diffuse and difficult to quantify, The framework for reparations does not require the same degree of precision with respect to identifying victims and ascertaining the level of harm. Instead, when deciding whether to include reparations, the enforcement agencies should consider the following. One, even though reparations are distinct from compensation payments, there ought to be some type of nexus between the nature of the indirect harm and the form of reparations. Two, as with the compensation payments, enforcement agencies must consider the inclusion of reparations and the settlement agreement and take into account the risk of repeat corruption. And finally, three, as with compensation, enforcement agencies might also consider whether reparations are appropriate in the light of the circumstances. Scholars and policymakers should consider how international foreign bribery regime, which focuses on supply side of corruption, might be wielded to assist those in the developing world's most harmed by FCPA matters. And supply side enforcement agencies have increasingly used the DPA as a tool to advance its remedial objective. In conclusion, this practice ought to operate out of clearly defined principles and best practices, rather than proceeding in an ad hoc. Jay, next up, we
1: have uh, an article in Compliance Week from Dave Leiford. Dave is the uh, editor-in-chief at Compliance Week, and it's great that he gives us a piece. Unfortunately, it's only once a month, but uh, early March, and we have Dave's uh, article for uh, the month of March, and it is entitled, CCOs Take Note, ESG is Having a Moment. And I think it's really prescient of Dave to write about this because it, it seems to be that we have several strands going on here, Jay. Of course, we have a change in administration, and the prior administration uh, did not give one whit about ESG or actually even doing anything positive in the area of corporate governance, social or environmental. And now we have the SEC announcing its increased expectations of companies on disclosing climate change. We've got Biden creating a new senior policy advisor position at the SEC. We have the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen saying that the approach uh, of her department will change dramatically on climate change. If you'll think back, Jay, to December when Nasdaq proposed that a rule that all listed companies have at least two divorce, excuse me, diverse directors, and uh, I would suspect that the SEC will come with some type of regulation on this. Uh, clearly, the government now is taking this seriously and is going to put regulations. And guidance in place, we, we still have corporations also leading this charge, Jay, with both um, requirements, their, their own internal requirements, but also requirements to do business with companies that have robust ESG programs. We saw this about 10 years ago in the compliance realm when uh, companies and customers started demanding that com- uh, uh, suppliers and vendors, and third-party sales agents have robust compliance programs, and doesn't surprise me to see this now. So, ESG certainly is having a moment. What's going to be the role of the compliance profession and the chief compliance officer, Kim Yapchai, the CCO at Teneco, was uh, in Q4 named uh, VP or EVP for sustainability ESG as well. So, we're going to have, uh, I think, a big role for compliance. And it's something that I think we're going to be talking about and
0: both writing about going forward. Uh, next up, Tom, we've got something coming to us from CCI and uh, two friends of the podcast, Stephanie Yonikura and Ann Kim over at Hogan Levels. And they're going to take a look at global trends on the ABC enforcement front, key developments from around the world in 2021. So as I said, Stephanie Yonakura and Ann Kim examined the impact of mammoth relief spending, widespread remote work and other key developments on the anti-corruption front that will happen globally in the next year or so. The massive sum of government funds allocated to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic and an unprecedented urgency to distribute those funds have created opportunities, unfortunately, for corruption at the very time that remote working threatens to weaken traditional compliance mechanisms. These conditions are sure to shape anti-corruption enforcement in the coming year However, they're not the only noteworthy developments. The authors highlight a few key trends and corporate uh, trends among corporate executives and compliance personnel. And we link to their report on global bribery and corruption outlook for 2021 in the show notes. Let me briefly highlight a few. More international cooperation means more multi-country investigations. We expect continued active co- co- cooperation among authorities across jurisdictional boundaries and investigation of corruption. Last year, U.S. enforcement agencies cooperated globally with enforcers in Brazil, El Salvador, France, Guatemala, Guernsey, Italy, Luxembourg, Malaysia, Panama, Singapore, Switzerland, and not to be left out, the United Kingdom. Corporations must be prepared to manage multi jurisdictional internal investigations. This requires being ready to engage outside counsel that has experience implementing a global strategy to resolve such investigations with multiple enforcement agencies while also navigating country-specific things. Continued focus on individual prosecutions. The number of individual prosecutions under FCPA have increased over the past five years, and it's expected that under the Biden administration, it will continue to focus on individual prosecutions to deter bribery and corruption schemes. Outside the U.S., recent high-profile prosecutions of individuals indicate the global authorities are also focused on holding individuals accountable. Settlements will be more expensive but more flexible. 2020 saw a record-setting bribery and corruption settlements, but at the same time, the UK and other national enforcement authorities have signaled that they're becoming increasingly comfortable using agreements similar to Deferred Prosecution Agreement, which has been long used by US enforcers. They will use this to encourage companies to voluntarily report wrongdoing and cooperate with investigators. Compliance programs, as you know, are more important than ever. The effectiveness of a corporate compliance program also continues to be an important consideration for numerous enforcement agencies as they may mitigate potential sanctions for bribery and corruption. In the US, the DOJ recently updated its guidance about how the department will evaluate corporate compliance programs. And in early 2020, the SFO also released a new internal guidance as part of its operational handbook. Focus on COVID-19 related fraud. Numerous enforcement agencies around the world have declared their intent to investigate criminal activity relating to COVID-19. We therefore expect a growing focus on bribery and corruption risk arising out of global health crisis. With all of the economic strain the pandemic has placed on businesses coupled with the pressure, pressure to maintain fiscal responsibility or even in some circumstances to actually achieve growth, the authors expect enforcement agencies around the globe to take a closer look in the coming year at businesses that have taken advantage of government support, examining the way the government contributions have been obtained and used. In closing, companies should therefore look back at their activities during the pandemic, in particular, auditing compliance procedures to ensure that they are held up to the stresses of the health crisis. Back to you, Tom.
1: So, Jay, next we have an article from our good friend uh, Jonathan Armstrong on the uh, conviction of Paul Bond, a former uh, SBM executive. This relates to the Unioil uh, matter, and he was involved with Unioil to facilitate the payment of bribes into Iraq. He was tried uh, to uh, hung jury, and this was his uh, retrial. He was convicted by the jury. So win for the SFO, and he was sentenced to three years. So now of the four individuals tried in the United Kingdom, one pled guilty, two were found guilty at trial, and now a third, Mr. Bond, was found guilty. Uh, We link to the show notes or in the show notes right to the quarterly compliance um, client alert on this. And if you're really into inside baseball, there's a second part to this blog post that uh, you really should check out. And that involves a gentleman named Tom Martin. Tom Martin headed up the UniOil investigation for the serious fraud office. And rather amazingly, the defense team of the UniOil uh, execs, the Ashani brothers, wanted him off the case. And they complained so vociferously to the Department of Justice that uh, they uh, complained to Lisa Olssofsky at the SFO. And they kicked him off the case and then fired him. For a trumped-up reason, um, the SFO looks terrible in this case. So, uh, one very black eye and uh, one positive uh, for the SFO last week. Uh, like I said, if you are like Inside Baseball, uh, this uh, really has a lot of information on the uh, Tom Martin firing. So, uh,
0: back over to you, Jay. Thanks, Tom. Uh, next up, we've got something from our good friend Jonathan Marks in his Board and Fraud blog. And Jonathan's going to take a look at FCPA themes for 2020. Uh, But before we dive into that, I wanted to give kudos to Jonathan and the entire Baker Tilly team for an outstanding first annual fraud summit. And in this episode of the Board and Fraud blog, Jonathan discusses FCPA themes from 2020 with compliance commentary. And it's based on a presentation given by Tom Fox and Mary Shirley, Head of Culture of Integrity and Compliance Education at Fresenius Medical Care in North America. Jonathan often opines on the role of the board, and this has been an area of significant emphasis over the past year as the apparent move towards more significant legal and regulatory scrutiny of board of directors and its role and best practices compliance programs. That rule has long been existing going back to 1992 under the US sentencing guidelines, which mandated that a board of directors must be knowledgeable about the content and operation of its compliance and ethics program and must exercise reasonable oversight with respect to the implementation and effectiveness of compliance and ethics program. In criminal actions against a business organization, including the FCPA, the DOJ's justice manual instructs prosecutors, prosecutors to ask and answer several questions, including one do directors exercise an independent review of the company's compliance program? And two, are directors provided timely and accurate information sufficient to enable the exercise of independent judgment? And In the 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, the DOJ posed the following two questions. Oversight, what compliance expertise have been available on the board of directors have the board of directors and or external auditors held executive or private sessions with compliance control functions what types of information have the board of directors and senior management examined in their exercise of oversight in the area in which misconduct occurred next in an article in the article Jonathan gives a shout out to the update of evaluation of corporate compliance programs and the FCPA resource guide second edition he then takes a look at COVID-19. It's not surprising that with trillions of dollars released by the federal government under the PPP and the PPE programs, that fraud is rising with dramatic upswing. In December, the ACFE published its fraud in the wake of COVID-19 survey it has been con- conducting the survey of its members throughout the year, and in the final survey of 2020, the trend continued from previous studies. More and more of the survey participants have observed an increase in fraud in the wake of COVID-19. In closing, what does this all mean? Your compliance program must be adequately resourced. This is more than having the appropriate number of professionals assigned to the function. It means filling these roles with professionals that possess the right experience and skills to deter, detect, and investigate fraud. Also, you need to become more business intelligent using feedback from employees and your data with the goal to be enterprise resilient. Jonathan feels that the word ugly equates to having the regulators use your own data against you. Back to you, Tom. So, Jay, that was a,
1: a great intro into our final article, which is by our uh, good friend and Everything Compliance colleague, Mike Volkoff, as is Jonathan Marks and Jonathan Armstrong, and of course, Matt Kelly, uh, and then Mr. Uh, Mister Monitors himself. But board liability increase, Mike writes about the evolution of thinking from the Delaware Supreme Court. I believe most of our listeners are going to be aware of the Caremark decision, which established uh, the requirement that boards make a good faith effort to implement a system for compliance program monitoring. And of course, uh, Stone v. Ritter, which um, stated that board oversight requires a showing uh, that uh, the board actually did something. And and then last year or two years ago, rather we, now we had uh, the Bluebell case, Marchand versus Barnhill. And then in the same year, Clovis Oncology. But Mike talks about three cases which, uh, uh, although different on the facts, the Delaware Supreme Court found that um, the uh, the cases could move forward. They have a unique procedural uh, system in Delaware that early on uh, the company, which is always a defendant, can move to dismiss the case based on summary judgment uh, before uh, any discovery happens in the case. In Hughes versus Hugh, uh, the board was not – uh, watching uh, any financials or looking at any financials independently of senior management. They were not having uh, an external audit come in and perform uh, uh, an audit. And they relied on the on the senior management, which uh, was insufficient. In Intermarketing Group, we had a similar situation, uh, rather, uh, I'm sorry, a little bit different situation because we had a pipeline provider, which was uh, not uh, bringing Pipeline integrity and pipeline safety issues the Board, There was a huge rupture and spilled 3,400 barrels of oil to an envir- environmentally sensitive part of the West Coast. I would note that the physical damage was significant, but the reputational damage was much higher. And then finally, we had Teamster's local 443 case, where once again, the, uh, there was financial shenanigans, but they rose to the level of criminal uh, actions so we had two civil cases and a criminal case, uh, and in the uh, Teamsters case, Teamsters local case, the board uh, failed to, uh, red flags were failed uh, to be uh, sent to the board and noticed uh, and acted upon by the board. So it's pretty clear the Delaware Supreme Court is getting out ahead of this. Um, we have seen uh, some movement by the Department of Justice around boards, uh, I guess the clawbacks in the— the Goldman Sachs case would be a good example, but I think we're going to see more Department of Justice and SEC looking at the board. But the the cost of these shareholder actions in Delaware is not to be discounted. Jay, in the Bluebell case, Bluebell had to pay sixty million dollars to settle a case before any depositions were taken. So that tells you it's a it's a serious matter. Even if it's on the civil side of things, there can be a serious payment out. It's certainly going to drive up uh, directors and officers liability insurance. And boards need to get the message that they have to engage in
0: active oversight of compliance
1: programs going forward.
0: So, Tom, uh, before we spoke to um, uh, Lee Fort and we talked about um, corporate governance, and I've got one more article I'd like to share with you. It's uh, Global Trends in Corporate Governance and comes from the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance, specifically It's posted by Rusty O'Kelly, Anthony Goodman, and Laura Sanderson, and they're all with Russell Reynolds Associates. This year, as in the previous five years, Russell Reynolds Associates interviewed over 40 global institutional and activist investors, pension fund managers, proxy advisors, and other corporate governance professionals to look at the corporate governance trends that will impact boards and directors in 2021. Now, first of all, for comparison, he publishes or the group publishes their global trend predictions for 2020, one greater focus on ES of ES&G, increasing importance of corporate purpose, better board oversight of corporate culture and human capital management, more expansive view of board diversity, and companies facing wider forms of activism. The COVID-19 pandemic and social justice movements have had far-reaching impacts on business and society around the world. In many ways, we're at a turning point. Corporate governance trends vary somewhat across regions, but corporations globally are experiencing a reckoning around their role in society. So here are the predicted trends for 2021. Climate change risk, diversity, equity and inclusion, convergence of sustainability reporting standards, human capital management again, return of activism and increased capital markets activities, and number six, virtual board and shareholder meetings. They're here to stay as we've reported previously. So number one, climate change risk. The pandemic forced the S out of ESG, environmental, social, and governance factors, Higher up the corporate agenda as companies sought to reassure stakeholders that they took safety of their workers and communities seriously. In 2021, climate change will be back in focus. Corporate responsibility for managed climate change is a long-term material risk, has gained traction in markets, and the Biden administration rejoined the Paris Climate Agreement on its first day in office. Number two, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Our number one trend for the U.S. this year is a hot topic in other regions, including the U.K. and Canada, though it hasn't migrated yet over into the E.U. The murder, excuse me, the murder of George Floyd in the U.S. and subsequent protests resulted in a collective awakening in many ca- countries around the world. Three, human capital management, the largest institutional investors, continues to increase their expectations around board oversight of human capital management and corporate culture. As part of the economic fallout from the pandemic and the social justice movements in many regions, demand for disclosure of more HCM data has skyrocketed. Four, return of activism and activism and increased capital markets activity, shareholder activism. activism can't get that one out. hell on. Shareholder activism slowed significantly in the first three quarters of 2020 but it's expected to return this year with more activity already seen in Q4 of last year and January of 2021. Activists will be looking for new scenarios to unlock value on the last boards. What is your obligation to future drive value creation even when the company is performing well? And number five, virtual board and shareholder meetings, they're here to stay. In the spring of 2020, as companies rush to convert their annual shareholder meetings into virtual events, Boards also shifted from in-person meetings to virtual. As they adapted to life in the virtual world, many execs began to explore how to permanently leverage the associated efficiencies post-pandemic. Many companies where there is an option will use some form of combined in-person and virtual shareholder meetings. The authors then take the aforementioned global 2021 trends and predict how they will play out globally, looking at Canada, Brazil, the EU, the UK, Australia, Australia, Japan, Singapore, Hong Kong, and Korea. So that's our last article for the day, Tom. We're in the month of March now. Who is our guest this month on the Compliance Life?
1: On the Compliance Life, I have Rob Chester, uh, and Rob is the most recently retired s- Chief Ethics Officer at Airbnb, and he wrote a best-selling book, Intentional Integrity. Um, he had just a fascinating legal and compliance and ethics career uh, up until the time he retired jay uh, virginia boy went to uva um u.s prosecutor a usa prosecuted uh, spy cases in the northern district of virginia moved to ebay in late 1990s was at silicon valley when it really was the wild west uh created a massive fraud detection unit at ebay Um, one of the world's, uh, at that time, one of the world's largest uh, consumer retailing uh, platforms, Uh, had a series of other jobs in uh, West Coast, Silicon Valley companies, took companies uh, public, uh, took them private, and then ended up at Airbnb. Uh, And in this first episode, we talk about his uh, UBA experience and and something I had forgotten about, which is UBA has an honor code and uh, it's a... Still a living, breathing, not document, but code, and uh, he talked about how that influenced his thinking really throughout his professional career. He talked about some of the most interesting cases he had uh, while in AUSA. So every uh, Tuesday this month, we have Rob Chestnut on uh, the the Compliance Life. Uh, it's a, it's a really great series. And I'm also extraordinarily pleased to announce uh, three new podcasts premiered this week. Two from Microsoft. The first being Voices of uh, Data Protection. And I'm going to have to go to the notes to uh, get this name correctly, so bear, bear with me. Ringarjan Ringarjan is Voices of Data Protection, which uh, <clears throat> talks about data protection in all ways, shapes, and forms. And then a very interesting podcast by uh, Raymond uh, Collin and Tala Mir on Uncovering Hidden Risks. And Jay, uh, at least in your compliance career, you have certainly focused on helping companies in the risk management area, first as Mr. Translations and now as Mr. Monitors. Uh, But typically, those risks are external. They are paying bribes or engaging in bribery and corruption or or a wide variety of other uh, illegal actions uh, that AMI helps companies remediate through. Well, this podcast deals with internal risks. And I once heard uh, someone say that your greatest risks are those behind your firewall. And when you think about it, um, it's your employees. And so this podcast deals with those kinds of risks, risks from theft of intellectual property to fraud uh, to taking money out the door and really everything in between. And it's you and I, it's not really something we look at because we're so external focused mm-hmm. on the rest that both, both you you and your colleagues manage and I talk about. So it's a really interesting podcast. They're both great. Uh, it, you know, if it's with, from Microsoft, it's uh, a first class. So I'm extraordinarily pleased to have them uh, join the Compliance Podcast Network. And then uh, Conversant has a new podcast hosted by Lauren Siegel called the Ethics and Compliance Library. And, uh, John Friedland uh, had the only compliance uh, book review podcast, and sadly, that uh, hasn't been active for some time. And so Lauren uh, thought up the need or recognized the need for sort of a, a book review, but her podcast is much broader than a book review because she's really got three segments to it. She uh, reviews the book, and she interviews the author, and then she talks to an industry expert about what does the book mean for the compliance officer. Uh, it's a it's a good hour. It's a fascinating format that she developed, and she's going to do a book a quarter. So she's going to take a deep dive into it. Um, so check out uh, the premiere issue of the Ethics and Compliance Library, where host Lauren Siegel uh, takes a look at blind spots. So uh, it was really great to uh, have a new
0: month and have uh, three new podcasts, Jay. So we've got a couple of webinars that Tom would like us to highlight. Uh, the first one, join K2 Integrity's financial crimes, risk and compliance experts on March 18th as they discuss the impact of ongoing developments in the financial integrity community. Topics will include regulatory trends and predictions for 2021 and beyond, changes in the AML, CFT and ABC landscapes and implications of evolving OFAC sanctions uh, as always, in the show notes, we'll have registration and um, information about the web ca- webcast. And another thing from uh, K2, please join K2 Integrity for a webinar entitled Libya, New Government Opportunities for the Construction Industry. This takes place on March 2nd. Paul Ryan and Supreme Hassan will be joined by guest speaker John Davy of Altria Capital to discuss the opportunities and risks in post-conflict Libya For the construction industry, registration and information is in the show notes. Tom, you've got a new book out. What do we have for our listeners regarding that? So uh, the Compliance Handbook,
1: second edition, uh, is now available for presale. There's a discount, and it's being published by LexisNexis. We're going through the editing process now for our final push. Um, Also, Jay, I've got a fascinating podcast series around this book, also called the Compliance Handbook, And in a kind of a twist for for me, I did a video pod or pod tubing, as the term is called. And so it's up on YouTube in the video format, and I've got a lot of resources around that. It's also available in the audio format for those a little more traditional to our podcasting listening audience. Um, Also available on uh, the FCPA Compliance Report, JD Supra, Megaphone, um, iTunes. So uh, check out the Compliance Handbook podcast or the video. And this week I had the Quick girls on to talk about written standards, policies, and procedures. And it was really fascinating to get their views on not only why you need policies and procedures, but how to, how to draft them and more importantly, how to communicate them and then monitor them on an ongoing basis. So uh, some good stuff out there. Uh, check out the Compliance Handbook. It's, uh, we've listed the discount code in the show notes. Uh, I would uh, somewhat humbly say it is the best single volume for the design, creation, and implementation of a best practices compliance program, and I'm thrilled to partner with LexisNexis for the publication of this book uh, next month.
0: Awesome, Tom. Uh, If anybody would like to reach Tom, he is not only the voice of compliance, but he's also the compliance evangelist. He can be reached at tfox, F-O-X, at tfoxlaw.com. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, Mr. Monitor, I can be reached at the initial J-R-O-S-C-N at affiliatedmonitors.com. Tom, anything else to add for this week? Or should I take us home? Take us home, Jay. So I'd like to thank you, along with Tom, for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 242 for the week ending March 5th, 2021, the Lion or Lamb ed- edition. We uh, thank you for either viewing us live or checking us out on all the different options uh, over the weekend. We hope that you and your families will be safe and well, and we'll talk to you next week on This Week in FCPA.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can reach Jay at Jay Rosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you will join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, talk about upcoming webinars, and review key podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, which premiered for the week. Thanks again for listening. Uh, Please join us on our live stream on the Q&A. We'd love to interact with you. It goes up on LinkedIn and Facebook at 4 p.m. Central every Thursday. You can engage with us then. We look forward to visiting with you again next week, and thanks again for listening.
0: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.